Thank you, Josh. If you've got your Bibles, keep them open to John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we want you to be able to follow along with us. So grab one of the blue ones near you. I think Josh said it was on page 754. We want you to be able to track with us and realize that what we're, what we're talking about this morning is not our opinion, which is ultimately irrelevant, uh, but it's truth from the Word of God. Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer before we get in this? Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness already, God. We thank you for how you've worked to bring each and every person who's sitting in a chair right now here. And Lord, we know it's not by accident that they're here, whether this is their first time or or hundreds of time. Lord, we know that, that you have them here for a reason. And so we just pray that uh, that as we go through this, Lord, that your, your word would speak loudest, God. Your spirit would move the strongest. That you'd push me out of the way, push the distractions of life that we brought in here out of the way. And it's that you'd have really just ultimate freedom to have your way in this room today. And we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know how important it is to know who you're dealing with? My first year of college, I was going to a school in downtown Indianapolis, and this was a, a big culture change for me because I grew up in a town called Cloverdale. Some of you might know where this is. Now, the big news in Cloverdale at the time I left for college is that we had just gotten our second stoplight. So we're a big deal, right? And I go from living in that kind of town my entire life to all of a sudden I'm thrown right in the middle of the most populated part of Indianapolis. And it didn't intimidate me, honestly. It was just vastly different. Uh, it wasn't long before I learned... Don't bother leaving campus between 4 and 7 p.m. because traffic's a nightmare. You won't get anywhere. Um, I also had to get used to having options when it came to food and stores. Okay? Because there is no such thing as shopping around in Cloverdale. Okay? You either go to Value Market or if you're feeling really fancy that night, you make the big trip into Greencastle and go to Walmart. Okay? And then all of a sudden, I go from that to have every major retail chain within 10 minutes of my dorm room. And one day this got funny for me because I had to go to Target. This is... There was something that I needed for a class, and the professor told me the best place to get it is, is a Target. And so I drive there one evening, and my goal was to get in and get out as fast as I could, because this is how I shop. Every second that I'm in a store is a second too long. Um, now, my wife is a browser. Okay, she can go into a store without a list. She can take her time and look at everything. She can come out not having bought anything and still having enjoyed herself. And I simply don't get that at all, right? Uh, I, I go in with a list, I will get what's on my list, and I will get out of there like I'm escaping a prison because I feel like I am. So I'm walking through this target. This is my, this is my mindset. I'm looking for what I need. And all of a sudden, this, this lady comes up to me. I've never met before. She's a complete stranger. And she says to me, excuse me, do you, do, you guys, do you know if you guys sell, and I can't remember the item she was looking for, but she's like, do you know if you guys sell this? You guys. Who guys, right? And I just kind of freeze, and I just look at her. And make it really awkward because I don't say anything to her. Because I don't want to say. And she saw the confusion in my face. After a few, sec few seconds, she finally said, oh, do you, do you not work here? And I go, no, no, I don't work here. And she apologized. And I told her it was cool. And we went on, our, went on with our days. So I walk a little bit longer, get to the aisle I'm looking for. And some random guy comes up. Hey, man, do you know, do you know how much this costs? I can't find the price on it. And I'm thinking, what is going on here, Right? I explained to him, I, I don't work here, right? And I, I'm officially weirded out at this point. This is my first time at Target. Is this what people do at Target? Like, what kind of store is this? Is it one of those things, like a co-op, where they think all the customers own a part of it? And that's when I saw them, right? Because I go up to the registers, and I see all the employees, and they're all wearing khakis and a red polo. Now, I'd come from golf practice, okay? And we had practiced as a team 
at a course that day that had a dress code. And guess, the dress code was there no jeans, no shorts. So guess what I had on? I had on khakis and a red polo. And all of a sudden, everything made sense to me, right? You see, since I was dressed like an employee, these poor people assumed that I was going to be able to help them. Right? They assumed that I would know things that I did not know. They assumed that I was someone that I really wasn't. Because it's good to know who you're dealing with. And there are a lot of cases of mistaken identity in our day. Some are hilarious, some are harmless, some are tragic. Right? But the re- there is a reason, that we must understand this, there's a reason that God has given us his word. And the reason is this, there's a reason that God has revealed himself to us in his Bible. It's because he knew how important it was that we know and understand who he is. Because people, all kinds of people make assumptions about God. All kinds of people believe things about God that he has already revealed to us simply are not true. You see, when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus, misunderstanding who he is, it isn't cute. Right? Having an incorrect assumption about Jesus isn't funny. It is dangerous and it's damaging. It can greatly impact your life and your soul. So we need to know, we have to know who we're dealing with. Today, we're looking at the story of Jesus' betrayal in John 18. And what we're doing is we're coming to the climax of the book of John. We've been building to it for a while. And I'm going to tell you from here on out, the momentum really picks up in this book. Jesus has spent three years ministering and teaching and healing, serving and loving people. He has spent three years preparing his disciples for what's about to occur. And, and over the next three chapters, we're going to see everything come to a head. We'll see those closest to him fail him miserably. And we'll see Jesus be faithful to the very end. And when it will look like everything is lost, everything is ruined, he will break forth in the greatest victory the world has ever known. But here at the start of John 18, we get to see several people interact with Jesus in what is an incredibly tense and emotionally charged moment. And what I was struck by as I read it is that nobody there understood who they were dealing with. No one had a right view of Jesus. No one grasped his identity. No one understood his power. No one was aware of his motivations. And so they made all these false assumptions about him. They held all these incorrect beliefs when it came to Jesus, and it's to their loss and detriment. And so let's look at John 18, starting in verse 1, where Josh read for you. John tells us, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Because Jesus had often met them, met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, got in a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. The first thing we're told in this chapter is when Jesus finished praying, right? If you were here last week, we looked at that prayer. All of John 17 is the prayer of Jesus. But when he's done with that, he heads to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. This was a favorite spot of Jesus, a place that he often went. Now, most scholars believe this was a spot that Jesus liked to go during uh, the festivals, during Jewish festivals, because during Jewish festivals, the city of Jerusalem would be packed. And given Jesus' popularity, if he stayed in the city, he would have absolutely zero time to himself and disciples. Everyone would be asking stuff of him. And so the thinking is that he would often go out in this remote garden, stay in this garden during the festival, so that in the evenings, he and his disciples could have a place to unwind and rest, and he could invest in just them for a while. And I tell you all this because of this. This showcases the depths of Judas's betrayal. You see, he knew this, right? Judas was a part 
of them. He traveled with them. He, was, he served on the team. And so he knew without even having to ask where Jesus was going to be on this night with his disciples. And he knew because he had personally spent many evenings with Jesus and the 11, other 11 there. And it's in that special, unique place, that place that was shared most often by just Jesus and his disciples, the place where he didn't teach a whole crowd of people, but he just taught them, the place where they got his undivided attention, the place where he invested in them most personally, that is the place where Judas is going to betray him. And of course it's a garden, right? Because Jesus is up to so much more than any of them realize. It's not just that he's going to suffer and die, he's been sent on a divine mission. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that God is, was pleased to have all the fullness of his divine nature dwell in Jesus because through Jesus, God was going to reconcile everything back to himself. Here's what this means. If you have believed in Christ, his death does forgive you of your sins and, and buy you eternal life. Thank God for that. But you need to know Jesus didn't just die for your sins. What you are is you are part of a much bigger, much grander, much more awesome story than that. Jesus was going to the cross to make every single thing right again. He was going to the cross to begin the process of reconciling every aspect of creation back to God the Father. Because back in Genesis, when God made the world, all of it was perfect and just as it was intended to be. And God placed mankind in the garden. And in the garden, there was no separation between God and man. There was no illness and no death and no natural disasters and no tragedies. Everything was as it was intended to be. And then mankind betrayed God. Humans disobeyed the one command they were supposed to follow, all in an effort to be like God. And we've been doing it ever since. You see, God in his Grace created man and woman in his image. We bear the mark. We bear the image of God more so than any other aspect of creation. This gives us immense value. And so what happened is God graciously made us in his image and we stupidly have returned the favor. But we now make God out in our minds to be just like us. Where we think and believe that he would, if he would just listen to us, right? If he would just take our input, if he would just do what we say, then this world would be better off. We posture ourselves as if, as if he somehow owes us an explanation. And we think that he needs our help, right? And all this rebellion, all this rejection, all this foolishness began in the first garden. And the consequences of that betrayal, the ramifications of that sin have spread far and wide to where they consume everything that we know about our reality. Now, we look out for ourselves first without even having to think about it. Now humans abuse and oppress and ridicule and mock, hurt and injure one another. Now creation is crumbling at the seams with natural disasters spread out all over the globe. As a species, we humans are as divided as we have ever been. And so somebody needed to do something. Or somebody needs to fix this. Somebody needs to offer a cure. Somebody needs to step in and fix it. And so Jesus returned to the garden. This time knowing he was going to be betrayed again. But he's going to use the betrayal to bring about lasting victory, not widespread defeat. Because on this occasion, Jesus is going to give himself to the betrayer. He's going to walk the path reserved for the guilty. He's going to become our sin. He will become our betrayal. He will become our rejection. He will become every single thing that God hates. And in doing so, he will open himself up to the wrath and anger of his father. And God will crush him. 
unleashing all of his anger that has been built up by seeing the effects and results of sin on his creation. And because of that, not only can we have our own sins forgiven, but we are brought into an eternal kingdom. And you and I who are in Christ, we will be witnesses of every single wrong being made right one day. We will see the day when all the former things like death, sorrow, separation, pain, and, all, and more pass away. We will see the lion lay with the lamb, the weeds and thorns disappear, nature be in complete harmony. We will see the eradication of every single disease and illness, every injury and every pain. And we will live in the presence of King Jesus, the one who reconciled everything back to God, the one who will make all things new, and the one who made all of it possible when he returned to the garden to be betrayed once more. And it's with that background that I want you to see how Judas actually approaches Jesus in the garden that night because it's, it's inconceivable. Look at verse 3 again. It says, so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Judas doesn't come alone because cowards don't do that. So what he brings with him, he brings first of all officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they're the ones who have wanted this night to happen for a long time. Right, they're the ones who finance this. They have paid Judas off to do this. But that's not all. We're told also in verse 3 that Judas is guiding, and the phrase there, a detachment of soldiers. That's interesting phrasing because a detachment of soldiers in that day, is, it was one-tenth of a legion. Right? And these detachments would be loaned out by the Roman government whenever you were doing something that you would expect a conflict or a skirmish to rise up. But you need to know, one-tenth of a legion is 600 soldiers. Judas is suited up here. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows that the other disciples aren't going to like it. And so he's trying to protect himself by bringing all this back up. And he's also probably trying to protect his reward. Right, this was far from the first time the chief priests had tried to seize Jesus, and every other time it failed. And so Judas likely wasn't going to get paid unless it worked this time. And so he brings all this show of force with him. And these details matter because they give you a picture into the heart of Judas. They showcase his absolute ignorance. Because I want you to see that by sneaking up in the middle of the night, by bringing 600 soldiers with torches and swords, he is showing us just how little he has learned. Judas has somehow been with Jesus for three years. He's sat under his teaching and influence all that time. He's seen and heard all those amazing things, and he still doesn't know Jesus at all. He doesn't know anything about who he is. He doesn't know anything about what he's like. He doesn't know what, how to, what to expect with him. And Jesus is about to show them all once more. Look at verse 4. It's a huge phrase in this verse. Jesus, and then hearing this, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Man, I really hope that by the end of the day, you were you just struck by how impressive Jesus is in this story. There's no surprise arrest here. Right, we're told right there in verse 4 that Jesus knows fully what's going to happen. Do you, if you were here a few weeks ago, remember back in John 13 when he sent Judas off, Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. What he's telling him is this, I, I know what you're going to do. There's no surprise, just don't drag it out. Which you think would have given Judas second thoughts, but no, he's still out here in the middle of the night planning his surprise attack. He's sneaking up on Jesus with more than 600 people as, back, as backup. And they're not just trying to surprise Jesus, they're coming expecting a fight. So you can imagine how shocked they were when Jesus just comes strolling up to them. He goes out to meet them without any weapons, any confrontation at all. And I love his question to them. He says, who is it that you want? 
Now, he knows the answer to that question, don't we? We've already been told that he knows everything that's about to happen. He knows that they're there for him. But Judas is standing right there with them in their midst, and he's, Jesus is going to make them answer this question. He's not going to permit them to sneak up doing this under the cover of darkness. No, he's saying, say it out loud. Say it. Who are you here for? And the reason for that is this. This is what we humans do with our sin, isn't it? We have this tendency to cover it up. We have a tendency to just to hide it in the darkness. We veil it. We make it seem less offensive and less evil by the way that we talk about it. We say things like, well, of course I'm not perfect. Or, yeah, I make mistakes. Or we speak in generalities. I- I'm, I'm a sinner, yes. Well, yeah, all that's true, but it's really easy to say. There's a whole nother level of confession that brings true repentance. Jesus wants to ask us the question. He wants us to say it out loud to him. Because it's not hard to say that I'm a sinner. It's really easy. We're all sinners. It's something more, something all the more to come out and name our sin. To say to, to God in prayer, I lusted after that person, Jesus. I lost my temper with my children. To say I placed unfair demands on my spouse. And the reason I did so is because I'm a selfish person. To say I, I was greedy when I spent that money on, on, on myself in a really unnecessary purchase. To say I didn't share the hope of Jesus with that person because I was a coward. To say that I was too quick to think skeptically of my neighbor because they're a different skin color than me. That, that darkness exists in me, God. You see, as hard as it is, as uncomfortable as it makes us, this needs to be a pattern in our life where we confess our sins to God and we name them out loud to him. We call them out. And asking him not only to forgive us, but to change our hearts. Because as long as we are asking for blanket forgiveness over sins that we haven't taken the time to really reflect on or identify, we aren't really repenting of them. But to name them, to call them out, to feel the regret for them, that's when we open ourselves up to the grace and mercy of God. And he forgives us and he changes us. Jesus Christ made them name it. What are you doing? Who are you here for? Look at verse 5. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, how foolish do they look? And they come out there in the middle of the night, soldiers, clubs, swords, and their strategy is twofold. They're going to arrest him using the element of surprise and a show of force. And when they arrive, he's waiting on them. There is no surprise. And not only does he wait on, he's not going to fight back, but he is, make no mistake about it, he is running the show. And so he forces them to state their intentions. And just by the power of his voice, he knocks all of them back onto the ground. Now, what does that mean? What happened here? Well, I don't know. Right? Maybe the Jews in attendance were taken back by his claim to be God again. Remember all the I am statements of John that we've gone, where Jesus says the word I am, and every Jewish man would know immediately he's claiming to be God. He brings that back here. I am he. Maybe the Romans were struck by just his calmness, his control, his uniqueness, or maybe he just knocked them all down because he could. Right, because his is the name above every name because he is in authority and in control. And their pathetic little swords and torches don't stand a chance against him. This is what Psalm 29 tells us, verses 4 and 5 and 7 through 9. I want you to read these. This is not talking about God. It's just talking about just his voice. 
The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bale. And in his temple all cry glory. Do you remember at the start of John when John told us that it was by Jesus that all things had been made? Do you remember how that happened? Back in Genesis, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. It was just the voice of God that ushered in all of creation. So knocking Judas and his cronies on their, with their cute little swords on their behinds is nothing for him. And what he's doing is he's letting the whole garden know, I'm the authority here. I'm in control of this. And when you take me in, it won't be because you surprise me. It won't be because you overpower me. It will be because I let you. And then get this. I love this detail. In verse 7, he asks him again. He asks him a second time, who is it that you want? Now, it may, it's just me, but the only reason I can think of to ask a second time is just to prove how big a boss you are. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're with Judas, do you even want to answer the question again? Right? But they answer, and, and then in verse 8, we get to see another aspect of Jesus' heart. Look at what he says in verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And if you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now, all the way back in John chapter 6 and verse 39, Jesus is speaking and he says that the will of God is that Jesus would lose none of those that God had given him. Last week in chapter 17, part of his prayer is that he recognized that part of his job was to keep and protect those that God gave him. And this is exactly what he's doing here. He goes out in front alone to meet the soldiers. He makes them admit that they're only looking for him. He then identifies himself so they know for sure that they are to arrest him. And then he tells them, now you let all these men behind me go. And this is why he told them back in John 13, where I'm going, you cannot come. Because he knew, he knew he had to face this alone. And in facing alone, he was going to protect his own. And there's a great sense of irony here. Because what Jesus is putting on display is one of the greatest things that Judas missed out on. And that is that Jesus looks after his own. Chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the great shepherd. And the great shepherd, he says, cares for, leads, looks after, protects, and lays down his life for his sheep. The Bible is littered with verses that speak on this. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says this, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 says, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Listen, these are just scratching the surface. There are dozens and dozens more verses in the Bible telling us how God strengthens, how God cares for, how God sustains, how God protects his children. And Judas could have had all of that. It's what Jesus has been offering him for three years, but he sought comfort in another lesser God. But in verse 10, we see that he wasn't the only one that night who didn't see what Jesus was doing. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter looks at this scene and he sees an opportunity. 
If you were with us a few weeks ago when we looked in chapter 13, do you remember the exchange that occurred between Peter and Jesus? Where Jesus tells his disciples that where he's going, they cannot come. And, ke- and Peter doesn't like this. He protests against this. He said he wanted to go with Jesus. He started talking about how devoted he was to Jesus. He even said that I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. To which Jesus told Peter, no, you won't. In fact, on this very night, you will, dis- you will deny even knowing me three times. And for four chapters, Peter has said nothing. And what has happened is those words have likely been resonating in Peter's mind ever since Jesus uttered them. And so what Peter doesn't see is Peter doesn't notice Jesus trying to fall on the sword and protect him here. He doesn't notice that Jesus isn't fighting this. What Peter sees is the chance to prove his worth to the man who doubted him earlier. And so he takes his sword and he cuts off some guy named Malchus's ear. Now think, think with me for a second of you're Malchus, right? Your name is actually recorded for all eternity in the word of God. And the only two things we know about you is that you're a servant and you got your ear cut off. Right? It's not a great resume, right? But I want you to think, I want you to think again about Malchus. I think he was ninja-like here. I think he was quick and elusive. Because I'm telling you, Peter was not aiming for the ear. Right? This was a kill swing. Right? He's coming out fighting. Only Peter kills no one. And no fight breaks out. And he's not a hero because Jesus squashes this immediately. Look at verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter is not praised. He's rebuked. He's not a hero. He looks like a fool. I mean, did he really want to go 11 on 600? And it's because he tried to take matters into his own hands. And Jesus has a different instrument to use than Peter had in mind. Peter grabbed a sword. Peter's answer was himself. His answer was violence and attacking and fighting back. Jesus tells Peter, no, I'm I'm taking a cup, not a sword. Because with a cup, you receive. And whatever the Father puts in the cup, Jesus will drink. And on this night and the day to come, his cup is full of suffering. His cup tells him to surrender and submit to this plan. His cup tells him not to fight back but instead to just protect his own, this cup that he received from his father, the one he must drink, tells him this must happen this way. And so he is not going to fight this. We're told in the other gospels that he actually reaches out and heals Malchus's ear. He restores it to what it was like before. He reverses anything and everything that Peter tried to do on his own because Jesus is in complete control of the entire situation. And he surrenders himself to a band of soldiers that, could, that he could knock over with just the sound of his voice. And as we look at this story, I'm struck by the control. I'm struck by the certainty and calmness and authority of Jesus. I'm struck by his focus and clarity on what he must do. But I'm also struck by how he was the only one who understood any of that. Everyone else in John 18, everyone else in the story doesn't have a clue what is happening. No one else grasps Jesus' heart or motivation. No one else gets at all what he's doing. And that's because all of them don't know who he really is. They don't know who it is they're dealing with. I mean, some of them knew his name. Yeah, some of them knew things about him. A couple even had a relationship with him. But just by their actions alone in this chapter, you can see that they don't, they don't know or they've lost sight of who Jesus is. And because of that, they each put themselves in harm's way. This is what human beings do, by the way, including us in this room. Whenever we lose sight of who Jesus is, we inevitably position ourselves as if we are him. I want you to hear that. Whenever we lose sight of who God is, we position ourselves as if we are on his level. And this is a grave mistake. I mean, think with me. Judas 
was somebody who could be surprised, right? Judas could be trapped. Judas was someone who could be overpowered, especially by an army of 600. His mistake was thinking that Jesus was like him. And so his whole plan revolved around sneaking up and surprising and overpowering Jesus. And he should have known, you can't do a single one of those things. Jesus was waiting on them when he got there. Jesus, just using his voice, overpowered this army that Judas brought with him. Jesus was not surprised. He was not trapped. He was not overpowered because Jesus and Judas simply aren't on the same level. And it's not even close. This detachment of soldiers came expecting a fight because they knew in that position they would defend themselves. So that's what they thought Jesus would do. When backed into a corner, they would come out swinging, so they thought Jesus would as well, but they're not on his level. And so he comes out to them willingly and surrender to the plan of God. Peter is someone who is in constant need of help. Peter needs defended from time to time. Peter required people to prove their worth to him before he loved them, and so he wrongly assumed all the same about Jesus. He grabs a sword as if the God of the universe needed Peter's pathetic little sword to fight his battle for him. He comes out swinging as if Jesus would ever need his help. And he did so to prove his worth to Jesus, forgetting that Jesus declares us worthy by grace and grace alone. It's not something that we could ever earn. We can't earn it. We cannot prove ourselves to him. And yet he died for us and loves us anyway. And right in the middle of all this, all the incorrect assumptions, all the misidentifications, you have Jesus saying this really simple phrase. I am he. I'm God. I am divine. I am all-knowing. I am uncontainable. I am limitless. I am selfless. I am loving. I am beyond reproach. And I am in control. Have you lost sight of who he is? See, we're so apt to forget. We're so quick to get distracted. We're so prone to try and take his place. So my advice to you today, no, my, my advice to me is this. Just, just let him be God. You make a really terrible God. You know that? You weren't designed for it. Let him be God. If you've been approaching God lately thinking that somehow he needs to defend himself to you, he owes you an explanation, Psalm 8 asks God, what is man that you're even mindful of him? That's the Bible asking God, why do you even waste a single thought on us? God owes us nothing. You know, if he did nothing, not a single thing else for you, all the days of your life, he's already proven his love for you on the cross. Let him be God. If you're somebody who's trying to control every aspect of your life or your children's lives, right? You're maintaining a tight grip on everything and everyone in your life. And therefore, you're acting like God needs your help. I'm telling you this morning, he does not need your input on his will for your life or for other people's lives. He doesn't need it. Let him be God. He is already, so just submit to him, submit to his sovereignty, submit to his goodness, surrender yourself to the idea, not the idea, the promise that he who began a good work in you or someone you love will see it through to the end. He's got this. The young couple who's dating are about to enter marriage and you have to decide whether you want to do this 
your way, right, which is to do whatever feels right or pleasing, to say that the standards of the Bible just simply don't match 21st century. It's just irrelevant, right? Or you want to do this God's way by acting out in faith and trusting him with your purity and waiting on his timing and inviting his blessing on the rest of your lives together. My advice to you is let him be God. He knows what he's doing. He has really good reasons for every standard that is in his word and everything he asks for us. So trust him and walk in his ways. To the business owner who wants to cut legal corners to make more of a profit. To the couple who wants to pursue the American dream and just get more and more and more instead of giving to the kingdom of God. To the college student who has the chance to just cheat a little on this next exam. Let him be God. Walk with integrity. Walk in faithfulness. Walk in contentment and with what he's given you. Trusting that he will not let you down. That he will always provide for you. That he will honor those who humble themselves before him. To the one who's sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You're coming to church. You're investigating. That's awesome. We want you to keep doing that. But you are honest and you say if you haven't yet fully believed or submitted yourself to him. And you know by now what God has told you to do. That God has said that you are a sinner, that you need to believe in his son Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and to be granted eternal life. That you need to surrender to your life to him and let him have control. Will you let him be God this morning? Will you just follow what he's called you to do? There's no other decision that will bring you more joy or have a more lasting benefit for you. But it takes you trusting him, giving your life to him and letting him be God. To those of you this morning who just facing something that is ultimately way bigger than you are. It's not bigger than him. And I want you to realize that the realest test, the truest test of God's power is not that he must always bring a miracle when we demand it. But real power stays. Real power endures. Real power is not fleeting. Real power lasts through the most difficult and darkest of days. And God's power is real. God's power carries carries widows in their loneliness. God's power fathers the orphans. God's power strengthens the sick when they have nothing less to give. God's power gives grace in abundance on the deathbed when all hope should be lost. And God's power has an answer for every one of those and more in Jesus and in the eternity that he's bought for us. So yeah, pray for the miracle. Cling to the hope that nothing is impossible with our God, but know and believe and trust that no matter what, he will be with you and he will carry you through. Because he's good. Let him be God. If you're questioning where your life has gone and you're hurt and confused, let let him be God this morning. If you're scared and terrified about what's around the corner, let him be Be God, run to his arms. If you're worried about the people that you love, let him be God. Surrender them to him and his power and his love and his grace. You see, in every season of life, every passage of time and everything that we will ever face, the best thing that you and I can do is just remember who it is that we're dealing with. The best thing that we can do is let go of control and let him be God. Because he is anyways. So it will only benefit us when we live our lives in submission to that wondrous truth. He's got this. So trust him and follow him. Let's pray.
Father, so many people in that garden in John 18 were just trying to take the reins back from you. They're trying to call their own shots, trying to control their lives, trying to control the situation, and it put them all in harm's way because you are God and you are God alone. Lord, we were created to bring you glory, not to act like you. We were created to be in relationship with you, not to posture ourselves as if we are somehow on your level. We were created to love you, not question you. And so around this room, Lord, where, whatever it is that we're clinging to control, whatever it is that, that we have not let your sovereign power have say in our lives because we're clinging to some idol or sin, wherever it is that, that we are on the fence of belief and have not yet surrendered to you, Lord, would, we, would you humble us around this room that we will submit ourselves to your rule, your power, your authority, and your control. You are God, Lord. You have this. So help us to trust it, believe in it, submit to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing this last song, I was just reminded of um, what Paul says about Jesus. Um, just coming off of what God was speaking to us through his word today. And um, in Colossians 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him um, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so that is Jesus, that is who we believe in, that is who we cry out to, it's who we hope in. Um, so um, before we sing this song, um, this song is, is a declaration of what we believe, what we confess. Um, so uh, with that in mind, that God was mindful of us to love us enough to die for us, um, being, being all that we believe he is, if we really believe he is who he says he 